Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Kairos Partnerships. Bob, how's it going over there? It's okay. It's a beautiful fall day here, and uh, I kind of wish I could be outside a little bit more <laughs> instead of uh, working inside because it's just Art. it like, Doug, I grew up in San Diego. And so that means for me, the ideal temperatures between 69 and 75. Right. And here in Boise, uh, there's there's not a ton of time where it's between those degrees. It's either okay. a lot hotter or a lot colder. And so when it is like this, man, I just want to get out there. But, you know, work <laughs> calls. So how are you doing? I bet it's a little bit colder uh, where yeah. you are. Yeah, we we've had a ton of rain the last few days, which is always super fun. And uh, I I started so when I came back from sabbatical, I got a membership to a gym, uh, and I lift. I literally was at the gym for an average of four days a week. It's like four point two days a week for an entire year, which has been great. So I'm enjoying the lifting. And then this August, uh, I decided to start something really dumb, which was running. And so I just said six days a week, I'm gonna run. Um, and, uh, I, running is probably a very liberal term, uh, more like limping quickly or something to that nature. But I've actually found that one of my favorite times to run is when it's pouring down rain, which sounds almost counterintuitive. I feel like most people look outside, they see it pouring. They're like, I'm just going to go back to bed. But for me, I've just found a ton of joy. So even though it's been raining and kind of dreary, that's actually been pretty awesome. I've been just learning to embrace whatever weirdness I have to encounter when I'm out running. And it's, it's been pretty fun. Yeah. 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 It, well, I imagine that's nice because you get the street to yourself in, in some ways, you know? Uh, yes. But yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, <laughs> good, I feel good, like good. it's weird. What, what, Cause when you do run by someone who's also running in the rain, there's sort of that look that you make with one another when you're like, you're nuts. Huh. And then you're like, and I'm nuts. Yeah. So it's just, I don't know. There's a weird, weird thing that happens there, but. Yeah, that yeah. recognition that you're both a little bit quirky for doing this. Oh, yeah, quirky. That's a very gentle way to say it, but yeah. Ah. Hey, have you have you been have you seen the the new Lord of the Rings prequel on Amazon? Have you been checking that out at all? I, I have. I the just Rings started it. Power. I just started it a, last week. I've I've watched a couple of the episodes, yeah. and my my kids are already through a all of it and i'm still kind of catching yeah. catching up with it but yeah i know you're a big lord of the yeah, rings it, fan like are you okay with it or yeah and and actually you know i i wondered going into it if i would be because hmm. the truth be told uh i was part of a i had a bunch of friends in in high school who were all super lord of the rings nerds right and uh, I was one of those that I would read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. I think I've read each of them probably close to 10 times because mm. it was like I would read them every year, year and a half or something uh, throughout high school and college. I had this one friend, though, he would read the appendices and he would read the Cimmerillion and those were his favorite parts. And I could never quite get into them because mm. they just have a different flavor you know, yeah. they're, they're, uh, they just, they land differently than the narratives in the, in the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit. And so my question was, well, what are they going to do? How's, how are they going to make those things come alive? And lo and behold, they've done it. You know, it, mm. it is, it is pretty cool. It, and I'm enjoying it 
but I'm just noticing like it's tis the season for prequels, you know, with with mm. that show and with the Game of Thrones one that they're doing. And and uh, it, it's a really interesting thing when you're watching something like that and suddenly something clicks like you you've already watched the the thing that it is prequilling. And suddenly something shifts in your mind and in your understanding of, oh, that's where that came from. Or, oh, that's what that meant. And it's it's almost like this uh, finding the Easter egg in the in the movie, you know, and, and it's suddenly it makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I enjoy that. I, I'd, yeah. I'd probably say that the that I love prequels in general, except uh, the Star Wars ones really ruined uh prequels for a lot of people i think was it was it really just the star wars ones or was it just jar jar binks i mean i think that's really the question that i feel like because i hear people talk about that but i also hear it's normally around jar jar and anyways jar jar was the most egregious but uh there were were some other issues as well yes there were some other issues but yeah there's something really cool about that just about the prequels and i think that's what i've noticed too when watching the the lord of the rings stuff with with my kids is and they're they're this is their second time through it now they're just like oh you know they're seeing stuff again that that i'm seeing for the first time and i'm and they're they're having these deep connection points and i'm still just trying to catch up to their connection points that they're having but it's it's a pretty cool thing yeah there's there's something about seeing a character like for example, Galadriel, the mm. el- elven queen that shows up in the Lord of the Rings, seeing her—I mean, uh, for all of Tolkien's genius, sometimes those characters that are so mature and so um, wise in their thinking, because there's no development, they seem a little bit flat because there's mm-hmm. no change. In no character arc. And so to gain an appreciation for someone like Galadriel, who's, you know, she's cool, but to see when she wasn't quite as cool and when she wasn't mm. quite as powerful and to see, oh, so that's, that's what informs the coolness that, that, that's what I'm really enjoying mm. is, is that sense of, of getting a sense of their growth, the maturity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think too, you, in the interview we're about to listen to, you, you sort of talk about the interaction between the Old Testament and New Testament is kind of like sometimes preaching, we can, we can, it's almost like asking someone, I think you said to, to watch the third movie of a trilogy and yeah. you'll glean stuff from it, but you I, kind yeah. of miss. They can yeah, enjoy it for it. what it is. Yeah. 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 But, it, but imagine how much richer it would be if they, if they had watched the first two already, you know? Mm. Yeah. How much more yeah, it would I, make sense. Yeah. And I think that that's really the gift of, of being engaged in scripture and even as pastors to help, to help stoke that fire of like, man, did you, you know, do you see how this is connecting deeply with this piece over here? And, and I think having a good understanding of the meta narrative or the, you know, the, the arc mm. of scripture is just, it's, I don't know. It's interesting. Even listening to, to our guests talk about it, I, there are just moments where I'm like, I got to go back and read that or like, oh, I should see that again. Mm-hmm. And it just helps you begin to see things in a, in a whole different way. Well, I know I got at least one 
new sermon outline out of this conversation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some good insight and uh, something I'm, I'm excited to preach on. So I enjoyed our conversation with Richard Averbeck about his book, The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church, and I, I think our listeners will too. guest today is Dr. Richard Averbeck. Dr. Richard Averbeck is the professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is the co-editor of An Excellent Fortress for His Armies, A Refuge for the People, and the author of many articles and journals and reference work. Uh, he, he is actually just retired, and he is working extensively on more writing and more research in helping Christians and pastors and lay folks engage the, and connect the Old and the New Testament. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Richard Averbeck. So we have with us today uh, Dr. Richard Averbeck, and we're really glad to have you. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on the Monday Morning Pastor. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So one of the things that we really enjoy doing, uh, because we've found that the call of God on people's lives is so amazing, and we love hearing the stories. And after reading your book, we're going to get to that in in a second. But tell us, tell us a little bit about your calling to ministry. Well, I came to know the Lord in college, and I heard that Pretty soon after I came to the Lord, I came to know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament was written in Greek. So I assumed Christians learned Greek and Hebrew. So I found a school that taught Greek and Hebrew, and I went there. And that's where I found my wife. Uh, and uh, so um, kind of went forward in history. And uh, one element of this call is that while I was in seminary, I was walking down a certain hallway and it just occurred to me, it popped into my mind that maybe God wants me to help the church with the Old Testament. And that's what I've ended up doing with my life. So uh, I, I imagine that this book is just the product of years and years of thinking and pondering and uh and scholarship. I'm wondering if you could tell us this, a little bit about just how you came to write this particular book. Like, how did that fit into that call for you? And, and how did it come about? Well, uh, actually, back in the 1990s, I was um, uh, doing a lot of articles for Villa Van Gemeren's Dictionary of uh, Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. And uh, I wrote about 250 pages on Levitical sacrifices and terminology and so on. And one of the parts of that was to uh, make sure I took it from the old into the new whenever I could. And what I found was that the New Testament was actually using uh, the Old Testament sacrificial ritual terminology for the church and the Christian life. And I had been accustomed to hearing that you separate the moral, civil, ceremonial parts of the law, and that the one that applies is the moral. But I found that the New Testament was applying even the ceremonial and the hmm. civil. And so it it, it became, it, it just didn't work for me textually to go in that direction of that tripartite division. 
And uh, the text doesn't do that. And even the New Testament doesn't talk about it that way. And uh, I think it was just kind of a ad hoc developed kind of thing to try to handle this problem, which has been a problem since the beginning of the church. Hmm. So uh, it, 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 dro it drove me to keep on thinking about this and working, and it eventually led to the writing of this book. Well, and that, that kind of leads us to the, the central premise. The, the title of your book is The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church, Reading the Torah in the Light of Christ. I wonder if you can just give us kind of a, just a bit of an outline of your thoughts. What, what is the place of the Torah in the life of the church today? Well, I, in my view, when Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant passages talks about, this is a new covenant, not, not like the old one, but then it goes on and says that in this covenant, the Old Testament law is written on the heart uh, of the New Testament believer, the New Covenant believer, anticipating the coming of Christ. Jesus refers to this in the upper room. Uh, this is the new covenant in my blood. And uh, the thing that stood out to me and continues to stand out to me is the fact that the law is not left behind in the new covenant. It was never intended to just drop it. Hmm. And uh, I have uh, found that to be really important as one of the starting points for the discussion, actually just talking about the nature of the new covenant. Now there are shifts and transformations from the old covenant to the new because the old covenant like was with a nation. New covenant is not with a nation. Uh, Christ has now come, Pentecost has happened. There are transformations. But I also found in my work in the Old Testament law that there are changes in the Old Testament law itself, even within the the Torah, the Pentateuch. There are shifts that are made for the changes, the, the changes in what's going to happen with Israel. For example, while they're traveling through the wilderness, if they're going to eat meat, they need to bring the animal to the tabernacle and sacrifice it there and offer make sure the blood and the fat go on the altar. Well, Deuteronomy is anticipating 40 years later, the entrance into the land when they're going to be spread out in the land. So how do they do that then? Do they have to travel if they're going to have meat for dinner tonight? Do they have to travel 30 miles to the tabernacle and then back and so on and so forth in order to do that? And actually, Deuteronomy 12 clarifies, no, you can uh, kill this animal like it's wild game and pour the blood on the ground. You don't eat, you don't eat the blood, but you can do it that way rather than bring it as a sacrifice to the central sanctuary. So these kinds of shifts are already taking place in the Old Testament. Then when we get to the New Covenant, the shift becomes significant because now we're moving from the Old to the New Covenant. I, I think there's something really unique about the way that you're, you're talking about this, right? Because many, many believers in, in most churches will skip over Levitical law or, you know, just be like, ah, Jesus took care of it all. You know, like it's, I don't have to pay much attention to that. And you've mentioned several ways that we tend to misunderstand the Old Testament. Um, and so how, how do we misunderstand the Old Testament in terms of preaching? And how might those misunderstandings play out in, fr from the pulpit, but in the congregation? Well, I think that uh, misunderstandings start with talking about the Old Testament law, but not 
really having studied the Old Testament law itself. Uh, there's a tendency to talk about the law knowing that you haven't really studied it in mm. any kind of detail. But the New Testament writers, the, the Bible of the first generation church was the Old Testament. And they were assuming that their readers would know the, this law in, mm. in, in, in the Torah. And uh, the result was that if we read not having that background well established, we're going to tend to misunderstand some of the things the New Testament authors are talking about. And I've seen a lot of that in my work where uh, there's, there's these ideas that come out that reflect nothing about what the law was doing in the first place. Hmm. So maybe I could illustrate that with the two great commandments, okay? Matthew 22 in parallels. Jesus is asked, what's the great commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he gives a second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He was asked for only one, but he gives two because they go together. And he says then that uh, all the law and prophets hangs on these two commandments. So what he's saying and how he views the law is the law is about loving God and loving your neighbor. Uh, most people think of the law as just a set of rules that they had to do, you know, this kind of thing. But actually, the law was designed to help ancient Israel live in the love of God and love of one another in their ancient Near Eastern world context. And so it's, it's set for that. But the whole point of it is what Jesus was talking about. And quite frankly, a lot of people don't read the law the way Jesus does. And in that case, they're reading it wrongly. Hmm. So there's a, a lot of issues here in terms of just basically understanding from the Old Testament and the New Testament what the law is all about to begin with. So I've, you know, I've been reading, I've been doing the one-year Bible for I don't know, uh, close to 30 years now. And I, I confess, I still struggle <laughs> in some of those Old Testament passages. I struggle to read them devotionally. I'm wondering just what kind of wisdom you might have in terms of as we read through the Old Testament, how, how ought we to handle it? How ought we to allow it to speak to us today without... Um, without getting weird with it, as some people do, you know, and, and try to mm -hmm. uh, yeah. literally apply the Old Testament laws or, or whatever. Yeah. How, how, how can I read that in a way that it will actually impact me? Well, to start with, I think it's important to realize that the book of Leviticus is one of, my, one of the most theologically significant books in the entire Bible, hmm. because it lays foundations for redemption and sanctification it's about holiness. Mm. It's about purity. It's about mm. all of these things. And I think it helps to start recognizing what these things are about. Now, I understand completely. You get all these detailed regulations, you know, and this step and that step and so on and so forth. But this is a text. The actual ritual procedures were meant to be viewed, seen being acted out. Mm. And so sometimes it's hard to see it because we're reading in a text rather than mm -hmm. uh, uh, re realizing and envisioning the priest doing this or the people doing mm. that uh, and so on. 
And so for me, actually, I have found right from the start when I began examining Leviticus, I found it fascinating just because mm. it's so different from what I'm used to. And uh, I knew I had to reorient myself in order to really catch on what God is doing with this material uh, and how it comes across. And it does come across just in general. Jesus became a sacrifice for us. If we're going to become like Jesus, we're going to have to be a sacrifice too. And that comes through in the New Testament. Like in Romans 12 on, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Other places, you need to bear your cross, you know, various things. Other places, it talks about as priests, First Peter 2, who offer up sacrifices in this temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, all of this. Mm. So there's all sorts of very lively things that this book of Leviticus lays a foundation for. And then you can look at Jesus. And in some places, Jesus is presented as the Passover offering. In other places, he's presented as the sin offering. In Isaiah 53, anticipating Jesus, it uses the concepts from the guilt offering, uh, hmm. peace offering, all of these. In other words, they actually are ways to discern different dimensions of the all-consuming work of Christ on the cross for us. So uh, it's, it's understanding it to begin with takes some, some willingness to concentrate on it and yeah. then to follow it through. And what I'm suggesting for anybody is just to do the biblical theology in the sense that you work with what's there in the Old Testament, then you just follow it through. You let what the Old Testament, you let the Old Testament do what it does with it. And then you let the New Testament do what it does with that. Okay. And, and you don't try to press one against the other. You let them be what they are uh, as part of the biblical theology process. As you, that's really fascinating because as you were talking about mm -hmm. um, reading those those sacrificial regulations that are often so challenging to read, I couldn't help but think about the difference between reading a Shakespeare play and seeing it. And yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it is so much better to read it when you've already seen it and you can picture the actors doing things we we don't struggle mm -hmm. in the same way when we, when we read narrative passages uh when we read mm -hmm, the gospels right. we picture jesus doing and saying these things but mm -hmm. the idea of picturing this old testament sacrifice being played out i hadn't really ever considered that that's that's a great devotional practice as as we read that stuff that's that's really great yeah. thank you for yeah, that it's very helpful As you've studied and written uh, on the on the Torah in the light of Christ, I'm just wondering what pieces for you have been most uh, formational, have been most impacting. That's a tough question. You're going to have to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or but maybe there not. is for me a real answer to that. Yeah, and that is that I uh, I've been very impressed with how much the Apostle Paul and Peter and so on, 
we have the glory of God filling the tabernacle when it's erected in Exodus 40. Then the same thing for the temple in 1 Kings 8 when they dedicate the temple. So the glory fills the tabernacle and temple, indicating that he's taking up visible, physical occupation, you know what I mean, of the, the tabernacle temple. Then you get uh, Jesus coming in John chapter 1, and uh, he comes and takes up tabernacling amongst us, and we see his glory shining, okay, uh, through how he lives. And mm. the gospel explains that's what he means by the glory there. He shows his glory by the various things that he does. But then in uh, John 17, in the high priestly prayer, just before he goes to the cross, he prays that the people who are his would be unified in him and that there would, that, that, that the glory of God that would shine then through them. Okay, so again, he comes back to glory. He wants to give his glory to us so we shine it in the world. I remember when I first realized what he was doing there, just being overwhelmed by the fact that mm. I and us, you and me, we get to be the glory of God shining in the world. Mm. And I actually, that's my calling. And uh, I just can't mm. think of any better way to live. And this has affected me very deeply in thinking about what I do day by day, moment by moment, is that I'm here to be the shining of God's glory into the world. You can see this right from the Sermon on the Mount. You know, don't put your light under a bushel. Let them see your good works so they glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul develops this in terms of the breaking down of wall between Jew and Gentile. And he says we're built together as the temple of God, cornerstone being Jesus, the temple of specifically the Holy Spirit, okay, filling the temple. And then in chapter 3, the second part of chapter 3, he comes back to this image and talks about the length and breadth and height and depth of this building, okay, of this, of this temple. And it being all, at the end of the chapter, being all filled up with the glory of God. So all of these, these points that the Bible makes pile up and uh, they can give a lot of the Old Testament from this background gives a lot of thrust to understanding what in the world that means. Mm. It means God is actually showing forth his presence in the world through you and me and us together. That'll preach. Mm. That'll preach. That will preach. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, uh, to me, it's, it's kind of overwhelming, actually, yeah. when I talk about it. Yeah. Mm. I, th I think what I appreciate, too, is you can't really talk about the Torah without talking about covenantal theology. And, That's right. and there's something that I found really interesting just thinking about one of the big issues that I come across as a pastor that I think <laughs> yeah. is a very real thing is many people in our congregations have this fear of missing out, right? And so it's easier to leave churches. It's easier to leave marriages. It's easier to kind of like take commitments and covenants a little bit looser than, than maybe what we see in the Old Testament. But how, how does a deep covenantal theology play out in the relational sphere of the church? Like, how do you think 
the writers of the New Testament were really trying to to portray the image of covenant of God's covenanting love with His people through Jesus. Well, where my mind goes as you ask that question is to the upper room again, uh, uh, celebrating the Passover, Luke twenty-two, for example, uh, and uh, Jesus stopping in the middle of the Passover and creating a whole new ritual with the bread and the cup. It's called ritualization, creating a ritual off a ritual. And uh, what he does is he um, takes that bread and that cup and talks about giving his body and his blood. This actually, for a, for a first century Jew, the, the apostles, they would have seen a direct connection back to Exodus 24, the ratification of the Mosaic Covenant, when Moses took the blood and uh, splashed blood on the on the on the altar, half the blood, and put it on the altar. Then he reads the law, and they commit to doing the law, and then he splashes the other half of the blood on the people. So there's this connection, covenant bond, blood covenant, that is established there in um, Exodus 24. Well. In the upper room, there's no way the apostles would have missed the connection back to that, that we're taking now, and this blood and this bread is being identified with Jesus dying for us. And it's leading up to the crucifixion and the establishment, therefore, as he says, the new covenant in my blood. So what I find uh, helpful here is that's kind of an anchor for understanding the link from the old to the new that the Jewish people of that day would have, wouldn't, couldn't have missed. Which means that in the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, communion, uh, uh, is really intended to be a, a covenant renewal kind of experience where we remember what he has done and recommit to living in the light of the covenant relationship we have with him. So covenant is a big deal in terms of the context for what goes on then when we live in the church, but it's the new covenant. And in the new covenant, we have certain regulations that are different from the, from the old because the old was given in a different context with a nation and so on and so forth. So there's adjustments that come through that have to be made in terms of how the people live. For example, I think this is an important example, uh, that Peter's sheet coming down out of heaven, all these different animals and so on. The vision says three times, take and eat, and Peter says, oh, I would never eat unclean animals. Then that's preparation for him preaching the gospel to Cornelius. And all of a sudden, Cornelius, this Gentile, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And he says, well, now we need to baptize them. They got the Holy Spirit like we did at Pentecost. And so what happens is that he got in some, he had to deal with this when he went back to Jerusalem in chapter 11 because Jews weren't supposed to eat with Gentiles. But he stayed with Cornelius then for three days and ate with him. Okay. So this breaking down of this wall was such a big deal. Now, this means that 
the clean and unclean animal regulations, what we refer to in later Talmudic form as kosher laws, okay, these, these, these clean and unclean animal regulations, actually, according to Leviticus, they're in Leviticus 11, but they're referred back to in Leviticus 20. And the specific purpose of them was to keep the Jews separate from the Gentiles. If you can't eat with them, you can't have covenant relationship with them. Hmm. You can't hmm. bond with them, whether through marriage or anything. Okay. So what happens is that when you come into the church and the breaking down of the wall of partition, you can't have Jews separating from Gentiles when they eat. Okay. In fact, in Galatians 2, Paul blows up at Peter for his confusion over this matter and and says, what are you wanting to make two churches now? And, and the point is that these clean and unclean, unclean regulations, since they were designed to keep the Jews separate from the Gentiles, that's one purpose of them, the, they, ca they can't be enforced anymore and should not be used to keep Jews separate from Gentiles in the church. Now, the clean and unclean regulations had to do with holiness and purity in ancient Israel. Those, this particular form of showing holiness and purity, clean and unclean animal regulations, can no longer apply. But that doesn't mean that holiness and purity don't apply. <laughs> they, th those concepts keep coming across in ways that correspond to the nature of the new covenant. So we separate from the evil of the world, you know what I mean, it, 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 and so on. And, and we're, we're, we're concerned about purity, especially purity of the heart. And things like this uh, uh, come across in ways that are written on the heart of the new covenant believer. Well, I I think there's it's so interesting because so many pastors that I've chatted with we, we seem to shrug off the Old Testament at times, right? Like, oh, it's just it's complicated, and you know, I'll just stay preaching in Ephesians. But I appreciate that you're bringing out these deep, deep connections between the old and the new covenant, and mm -hmm. how understanding the particular passages that you're bringing up, there, there's such a depth and a, and a root that goes so deep into God's, you know, the big story of redemption, the big story of what God is doing. How would you like to encourage pastors to engage the New Testament? The Old Testament. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> the Old Testament. Yes. <laughs> um, well, actually, I think Old Testament and New Testament, we need to, we need to um, be a whole Bible Christians, okay? Mm. Uh, and, and unfortunately, often the church does not generate whole Bible Christians, people who are tied in with God's word as a whole. And uh, that's how I would encourage uh, pastors to think. We're t New Testament, fantastic, but... The Old Testament gives so much power behind the New Testament mm. that you can't have without yeah. that foundation. It really can, it, it actually preaches better because you have more mm. substance supporting live this way. You know what I mean? Not that way. You know, uh, mm. uh, and worship this way, not that way. Um, have relationships this way, not that way, and so on. And, uh, this, this is multifaceted in, all, in every dimension of human life. Mm. And so <clears throat> it might be helpful. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it might be helpful to 
think about Leviticus as kind of like the framework within which you should read the Psalms. <clears throat> and the Psalms mm -hmm. give all the heart <clears throat> to what people are going through as they live. You know, Romans 8, second part of it, talks about the groaning uh, that we experience in this world and the groaning of the world around us and so on. And uh, we have to go straight at that. And uh, one of the ways to do that is engage with how many different dimensions of that come through in the Psalms as part of almost like the hymn book of the worship system of the temple tabernacle worship system. Kind of mm -hmm. that's really what the Psalms are. And so this binding these together can really uh, give a lot of substance to mm -hmm. what's going on. And people can understand then how they're, their life is based on the whole Bible in the way God has built his program, uh, developed his covenantal progressions, uh, all of these things. And uh, again, where you, you let the Old Testament do what it does and let that give foundation for how we then read the New Testament, which is what the New Testament authors intended. Yeah, yeah it's, it's almost as though uh, the way that we preach and the way that we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, it, it's like encouraging people to watch the third movie in a trilogy. Uh, and maybe they're going to understand mm. it. You know, they'll get a lot out of it. They'll enjoy it. But how mm. much more would how much more meaning would there be and how much more enjoyment would would there be if they knew the first two movies, the the first part of the story? Yeah, if they really got that, you know. Yeah, not not just the return of the king. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You got to read The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers. Don't don't just jump in on The Return of the King. Uh, I, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us and really giving us uh, an expanded vision and uh, of the Old Testament and kind of maybe rekindling some some desire to dig back into that, particularly as we do preach New Testament passages, to connect them, to to find the meaning and to connect them. Uh, I, I want to encourage our readers to check out your book, the, uh, our readers, our listeners, to check out your book, The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church from IVP. And Dr. Averbeck, I, I just wonder if you'd leave us with a benediction. We have a lot of pastors. Uh, the podcast comes out on Mondays. They're tired. They've preached. Uh Today is, is, for many of them, uh, just kind of a day of, of maybe not a whole lot of people stepping back, re being recreated. I, I just wonder if you could leave us with a blessing for those men and women who are in that space. Yes, uh, I think that's a great idea. I would like to go to the well-known priestly blessing <laughs> in Numbers chapter 6 because it's very appropriate for the topic uh, that we're talking about. The priests were supposed to bless the people with this blessing, saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. So there's a concern for really the specialness of the Lord in their lives and his watch care over them. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you, the shining of God's glory. Okay. Uh, on us and the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you 
Peace. Shalom. Shalom. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of MMP. Our passion is to serve, partner with, and equip hungry pastors and kingdom leaders just like you. Have you signed up for the Kairos Partnerships free weekly newsletter called Five Things in Five Minutes? It's free and it's delivered to your inbox every Tuesday morning. It provides valuable thoughts, links, questions, and quotes to equip you for the ministry and leadership journey. And the entire thing can be read in five minutes or less. To sign up, log on to kairospartnership.org slash 5T5M. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you.